I want to bring you tonight uh, a tale of two cities. And uh, it's very much a study in contrasts. The church at Jerusalem, we were thinking about, um, some of us here in this morning, uh, after the day of Pentecost, they were utterly zapped and absolutely on fire. Um, and the sequel, um, the, the nurture of new believers and the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, there were shared possessions, there was wonderful unity, um, there was home meetings, there was the conversion of many uh, Jewish priests, and there was the goodwill that they enjoyed from the people. Um, this, this city of Jerusalem was simply buzzing uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you follow the first few chapters in Acts, you'll find that Jerusalem is very prominent. It's from Jerusalem, the word goes out into Judea, and then Samaria, and so on. Um, it's to the twelve apostles in Jerusalem that Paul and Barnabas and other missionaries report back. Uh, the city, uh, rather Christian part of it, was absolutely glowing example of what a church should be. And yet, and yet, as the Acts goes on, we find less and less reference to Jerusalem. It figures mainly as the place where St. Paul, the church's leading evangelist, gets arrested and imprisoned. Sadly, in the second half of this book, Jerusalem fades very much out of the picture. It's a disappointment. And you know, many a church is like that. Um, it, it starts well, it seems flourishing, but somehow it loses its cutting edge and it um, relapses into mediocrity. Mission is replaced by maintenance. Outreach is replaced by keeping the thing happy inside. It's a solemn warning to every apparently successful church. They'd lost the plot. They weren't reaching out anymore. Maybe it was because they compromised with Judaism. Fear of what the Jewish majority would say if they were bold and clear about Jesus. Many churches fail in that way. Maybe it was corruption, the sort of thing that Luke exposes in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Many, many a church has been ruined by corruption, often in its leadership. Maybe it was sheer laziness. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. If you look at, at the way Acts is written, these guys hang out in Jerusalem. Jesus said, scram to the ends of the world. I said, no, no, we like Jerusalem. Somebody else can go. Stephen can go. Somebody else. And we'll stay in Jerusalem. And um, they, they, they lost out on world mission that Jesus had bidden them to do. If the gospel was going to reach the world, it was clearly not going to happen from Jerusalem. Their passion for outreach had died, and God had to look elsewhere. And God did. And he found Antioch. That's the other city about at which I want to tell you a tale. Antioch dominated the second half of Acts. It became the heartbeat of dynamic Christianity. Luke takes pains to tell us how Antioch became the springboard for world mission, first in Europe and then globally. 
what is Antioch. Well, Antioch was a big city for those days. It had um, more than half a million people living in it, which was massive then. It was the third biggest city in the empire after Rome and Alexandria. It was the capital of Syria. It was a big maritime uh, trading port, and it was the home of four Roman legions. Excavations there have been very interesting. They show uh, that it was a highly superstitious city, that it was a multi-faith city, that it was deeply into witchcraft and the occult, that it had a big red light district. It was, in fact, a very modern city. Many nationalities milled around in its streets, and there was not a single Christian among them. How could you reach a city like that? What would you do? Would you say, let's try and find uh, Simon Peter, put a good team around him, and send him off with a mission there? No, they didn't do that. Ah, perhaps they ought to have had a five-year plan to try and get it sorted. Didn't do that either. Did they throw money at the problem and hope that that would solve it? No, they didn't. It happened in God's way, and we would never have dreamed it. The outline of what I'm saying tonight is in, in your notes, so um, that will show you where I'm going. I've got five things, really, that I want to bring to you. And the first one is that the men that God chose to reach Antioch, notice three things about them. One, they were laymen. There was not a vicar to be seen. There was not a dog collar within range. These were all laymen. They were friends of Stephen. They had been pushed out of Jerusalem by persecution when the balloon went up for Stephen and he got bumped off. And so they just went up the coast. If you, if you know the, the east side of the Mediterranean, it's just a sort of straight line. <laughs> There's hardly any ports or anything there. You just, you, if you're from Jerusalem, you're going north, you go boom, up the coast. And that's what they did until they came to Antioch. Antioch is sort of in the elbow where things begin to turn into, into Turkey. And um, these guys said about it. They didn't know anything about it, but they did it anyway. What a lesson to the traditional churches of Christendom that are dominated by priests and by clergy. Nothing can happen without the priest saying so. That's the way to stifle a church. And mercifully, these guys did not travel that route. They believed in every member ministry, that everyone had got a job for Jesus. Let me tell you this. You cannot be a Christian without having a ministry. So don't let me ever hear you talk when I come back here about so-and-so being the minister. You're all ministers. Different jobs. Ministry simply means a work that you do. And God has given each of you different talents. And he wants to use, to use them Monday through Saturday, of course. But he also wants to, you to use them in the Christian fellowship. And I've seen a tremendous amount today of every member ministry in this church. And it really thrills me. That's the first thing that I notice about the men God chose. They were laymen. Second thing, they were ready to sacrifice. 
These guys laughed at problems. They were like veterans who wore all their medals on their chest. They had no income. They hadn't got any job. They hadn't got any home now. They certainly hadn't got any insurance policies. They were separated from whatever family they had. They were not sure where they were going to sleep that night. And all because they followed a crucified carpenter whom they claimed was alive. These guys went through horrendous hardships and there's not a flicker of it in the story. Nobody mentions it at all. They shrugged it off. These guys were prepared to sacrifice. But a lot of today's church is very soft. The third thing about them, not only laymen, not only prepared to sacrifice, but they were not in bondage to the past. These people were the friends of Stephen. And if you look back um, sometime, not now, in, in uh, Acts chapter 6, and you see these guys pointing fingers at Stephen, they're called false witnesses because they twisted, but obviously what they say had got some relationship to what happened. And they said, oh, he's always on against this place, the church building. He's always on against the law of Moses, and he's got innovations there. He's always there against breaking our customs. And these followers of Stephen realized that true Christianity was not about a building, even as beautiful a building as this. It is not about a book, even the book of Scripture. It was not about what we did last year, the customs that Moses handed on to them. But real Christianity was following the ascended Son of Man who was always reaching out in mission. That is the quality of the men that Jesus chose for his job. Lay people prepared to sacrifice, to get out of their comfort zone, willing to innovate and to relate to secular people. Well, those are the people God can use in Antioch or in Claygate. Here's the second thing I notice about this wonderful story. It's the good news that excited them. Look at uh, verse 20 of Acts 11. Um, They were just speaking the word to nobody except Jews in the sort of traditional way they did, church people. But among them there were some from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they came to Antioch, they spoke to the Greeks as well, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The key to their impact in Antioch was just this. They were excited about Jesus. They said, but we can't just leave it to church and all these sort of churchy people, these Jewish people, rats to that. Let's get out amongst the people that um, have never heard of Jesus and let's spill the beans. And they were so excited about Jesus that they took this wonderful initiative which led to the whole, really, of the Western church coming into being in mission. They couldn't keep quiet about Jesus. And that is how these homeless refugees began to capture sophisticated Antioch. They had discovered Jesus, whose death pledged their forgiveness, and whose risen life was like jet fuel inside them, propelling them into outreach. The very word Jesus 
means God to the rescue. And that's what they'd experienced. And that's what they wanted to pass on. Not church, not morality, certainly not the weather, but they wanted to speak about the most marvelous person the world had ever seen, the Lord Jesus. And it was this excited conversational evangelism. Evangelism just means telling good news. It was this that led to Antioch becoming the springboard for world mission. It still does when a church is full of people who are excited with Jesus and unembarrassed to talk about him at work, in the pub, in the home, wherever. That's how impact is made. By the 1970s, in China, Christianity had been squeezed down to just a very few million. And the pressure was on these guys. But when um, Deng took over and opened a more liberal policy um, towards other faiths and towards Western views, Christianity just grew like topsy. And now they reckon, I was talking to some of the Chinese leaders who were in Oxford this past year, and they reckon something between 80 and 100 million believers are in China today. Probably more than any other country in the world. And that has come, not from preaching very much, but from the witness of these ordinary guys who are thrilled with Jesus and can't keep quiet about him. Because when we do that, people start asking questions. People uh, start disagreeing. Opportunities open up. And, um, it, you know, it's easy to take the, the spiritual temperature of a church. And it's simply this. You put the thermometer in their mouth and you say to yourself, how excited are these guys about Jesus? How willing are they to chat about him when opportunity offers, not when stuffing it down people's throats, but when opportunity offers, how willing are they to say, do you know, I have found. People hate being preached at, don't they? But they love the sharing of experience. And if you could say, you know, when I lost my job or um, when my spouse died or something like that, I don't really know how to cope with it if it was not for Jesus Christ. It's made such a difference to me. It's not very difficult to say. It just requires a bit of guts and a bit of honesty. Um, and that is how the gospel spread at Antioch. I'd love to see that happening here more and more. I believe it does happen. This church has doubled in, in, in membership in, in, in recent years. Um, it could double again and again. Listen to what Rosemary had to say about Billy Graham's brother if we got that bug in us of wanting to not keep quiet about Jesus, not be embarrassed about him. Yeah, of course I'm a Christian, aren't you? Man, you're missing out on the best thing in life. Here's the third thing that I notice about this church. It's not just the individual conversations about Jesus, it's the community that they formed. You see, it was their community life that must have blown people in Antioch away. Four things stand out. One, their love. This was the city, the first city, where Jewish and Gentile believers loved each other. And it was eloquent. Normally, in, in uh, that part of the world, if you were a Jew, you didn't even want to spit at the Gentiles because it would defile your spit. 
And that was returned with um, knobs on. That's how they got on with one another, or didn't. And now we read that Jewish and Gentile believers ate together and worshipped together in Antioch. And Peter was in it, boots and all. And then when some of these um, toffee-nosed people from Jerusalem came up and said, oh, oh, what's all this? Uh, uh, Jews and non-Jews eating together. Peter said, oh, terribly sorry, not very good. And he gets a terrific rocket from Paul for doing so. And I'm sure he he learned from it. But the love of these people um, was absolutely thrilling. And where you've got a church where love is flowing for one another, boy, it's winsome. Because it's a cold world out there. Second thing I notice is their compassion for people in need. In 1128, we read about a remarkable bloke called Agabus. He was a wandering, charismatic prophet. And... We find him elsewhere in the New Testament. But but you can imagine this hairy bloke coming in and walking into that church and saying, there is going to be a famine, a terrible famine that's going to hit the Middle East. And you could have said, the guy's nuts. Or you could have said, well, perhaps it's true. But, um, well, let's wait and see. They didn't do either of those things. They passed the helmet round. They had a silent collection, paper money, for the saints in Jerusalem. Can you believe it? The Jerusalem Christians, where it all started, they might easily have said, we don't like their their way of doing things, or their rather sort of, their their, their churchy practices about all these old Jewish things that they still do. They're not very sound, those people. We're not going to cough up for them. Or they might have said, you know, the the treasurer might have said, gentlemen, don't you realize these people are so financially clueless that they shared not only their income but their capital. Of course they're going to suffer in a famine. They didn't do that either. They just coughed up. And they didn't even throw money at the problem. They put a human face on it. Barnabas and Saul. When you find compassion like that in a church for people in need, It's never going to run out of custom. The third thing I noticed there is their leadership. um, It was very well well read to us, all these names, in chapter 13, verse 1. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. Just look at those names. Barnabas came from Cyprus. He was a landowner. Simeon was called Niger, because he was clearly a black man. That's what Niger means. Lucius from Cyrene, North Africa, a brown man, Arab background. Manian, brought up with the President of the United States, he was out of the top drawer. And Saul of Tarsus, no comment. What an amazing leadership team. So you see, they didn't go for monarchy. What father says goes... That happens in some churches. They didn't go for democracy, having endless committees to try and sort things out. They had a leadership team. I'm sure it was very sensitive to the church and the feelings of the church. But you had this very diverse team. So different people in the church could identify with different members. And I know you've got a leadership team here, and I've seen some of its warmth today, and I'm thrilled with it.
But notice, this was not only cross-cultural and international, um, but there was another thing about it. Did you notice there was prophets and teachers? You know what teachers think of prophets? They think, these guys are crazy. They swing from the chandeliers, these loopy charismatics. You've no idea what they're on about. And the charismatics think about the teachers. What a dreary lot they are. They just stuff themselves into footnotes of the text with great ice packs on their head, burning uh, midnight oil. What a boring lot. And usually they don't get on. But they did here. And you know, in any church, you want the charismatic and the teaching ability. You want that balance to hold it together. It's not easy, but they did it there. Happy the church that has a varied team leadership like that. And then there was their worship. Just look a little bit further in chapter 13, verse 2. They were worshipping the Lord and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. They fasted and they prayed. They laid their hands on them. They put Mars bars in their bags and they sent them off. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But notice what that worship tells us. They were first of all worshipping the Lord. Often we don't worship the Lord. We just sing songs. Or we think about what we could be doing if we were outside in the sunshine. They were concentrating on the Lord. That's the first thing that I notice. And um, it, it, it um, has, uh, th- th- their work, their, their worship had a structure to it. The, the Greek word um, for worship used here is uh, one that we have that's translated as liturgy. Now, they didn't have books, liturgy books, a book of common prayer or anything like that. No, no, no. But liturgy meant an order, a, a sequence, praise, Maybe confession, maybe scripture, maybe teaching, maybe uh, shared ministry, maybe blessing and departure. The people knew roughly where they were going, and that was extremely healthy. But it never got stuck, because we read the Holy Spirit breaking in to the worship of these people. And I can imagine many a church, this is Pentecost Sunday, ladies and gentlemen. I can imagine many a church in the world when the Holy Spirit is itching to break in. And the leadership says, I'm terribly sorry. If you wanted to break in, you should have told us before the bulletin was printed on Thursday. (laughs) The Holy Spirit broke in, probably through a prophetic utterance, and said, separate Barnabas and Saul. What would you think if the Holy Spirit said here, let's take Mike and his boss and take them out? send them elsewhere. What would you think? That's pretty courageous, isn't it? And they didn't just listen to those people. They actually did it. And they equipped them. And they sent them out. This was a church that was passionate, not only about mission at home, chatting to people, but launching out in the way Jerusalem had not, launching out into the great unknown beyond. I think that's fantastic. And given those four characteristics... The community of this church here could be by far the most exciting church in the whole area, exhibiting life to the full. I'm nearly through. 
but I can't stop before we look at the power that they discovered. And that was, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit. They may, some of them, have actually been there on the day of Pentecost. They would certainly have been involved in fearless street preaching. They had seen the radiance of the Holy Spirit on the face of Stephen as he knelt, as the rocks were crashing into him and he was bumped off and the radiance, we're told, his face was like the face of an angel. And in this passage that we've had read tonight, there are three references to the Holy Spirit. And they all speak of different aspects of this mighty gift of the Lord. In 1124, we read of Barnabas that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Barnabas was actually his nickname. His real name was Joseph. And oh, Barney was a terrific encourager. And the name stuck. Wouldn't it be lovely if this church was full of encouragers? It'd be terrible if everybody was a preacher here. It'd be chaos. But if everybody was an encourager, how about that? How about that? Well, dear old Barney was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a good man. You see what the Holy Spirit had done? It had worked on the character of this farmer from, from, um, from Cyprus and made him a really good man, a shiningly good man, full of encouragement to others. His character uh, had been changed. And, you know... When the Holy Spirit works on our character and transforms it, uh, you've seen it in some of the people you know. They sort of glow. They don't realize it, but you realize it. They glow with the presence of the Lord. That's what the Holy Spirit does, character. Second thing the Holy Spirit does is gifts. Agabus, this hairy guy coming in in Acts 11, 28 and prophesying this thing. It was actually correct prophecy um, from 44 AD for nearly, for nearly four, four years. There was a very substantial um, famine. Um, so here God has given him the gift of seeing something in the future and encouraging others by pointing to it. Prophecy in the New Testament is not always predictive, but it is always the Lord speaking to the congregation through one or other person present. And it could be anybody. God may give you that gift. And if you do, then the leadership of the church needs to hear it and needs to be given opportunity from time to time to exercise it. There are other gifts that are major in the early days of the church. The gift of tongues, that's worshipping God with vocables that just flow up from inside you. Uh, and they don't make any sense to you but they can make sense to other people and their offering of your love to the Lord. There might be the deliverance from dark spiritual forces. There might be healing. We get all of these things um, very clearly in the New Testament, and they still happen today. Happy the church which rejoices not only in the fruit of the Spirit, but in the gifts of the Spirit. And they don't all have to be jazzy at all. We're told that the gift of helps or the gift of leadership are special endowments by God's Holy Spirit. So covet the gifts of the Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit what gift he wants you to cultivate, to use for this lovely 
church here. And the other thing, of course, was mission. The Holy Spirit changing character, the Holy Spirit giving gifts, and in 13.4, the Holy Spirit sends them off on the first missionary journey which brought the gospel to Europe. The Holy Spirit is not given to make us comfortable. The Holy Spirit is given to open our lips and give us the courage to get stuck in. It was like that at Pentecost. Once filled with the Holy Spirit, these terrified disciples were passionate to reach out. And at Antioch, the Holy Spirit made them overflow to the folks round about them in that personal conversation that I spoke about just now. And the Holy Spirit made them get behind this outreach of Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. Mission at home, mission overseas. That is the very encouraging pattern that you see of the Holy Spirit. He changes character, he gives gifts, and he drives us out in service. And the final thing uh, I notice is this, that they were called Christians for the first time in Antioch, 1126. I think that was probably modelled on the Augustiani. That is the um, civil service network, almost, of the Roman Emperor Augustus that was spread all over the empire. And they were loyal to the emperor, and they reminded people of the emperor and so on. Maybe the Christians were called Christians because of that. They called themselves followers of the way. But other people said, these guys are like Christ. These guys talk about Christ. These guys try to please Christ. These guys bring Christ into the pub, into the house, etc. They were the original Jesus people. Long ago, in the 15th century, there was a great spiritual revival in Florence, a man called Savonarola. And so much so that in the central square in Florence, there is a palace there, the Palazzo Vecchia. And there was um, inscribed in stone above that palazzo door, Jesus Christus Rex Florentinorum, Jesus Christ, King of the Florentines. That's terrific. Jesus Christ, King of Clagery, yes. But as the years went by and as the spirituality died down, it often happens when spirituality died that you have more ritualistic things to make up for the emptiness growing within. And so that happened in Florence. And they said, we can't just have Jesus Christ, King of the Florentines. No, no, Jesus Christus, Rex Regum Dominus Dominorum, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what for him. But the heart had gone out of it. And I think that this Antioch thing leaves us with a question tonight. Can you say that your passion is that Jesus Christ should be King of Claygate and mean it? Or are you to rest on your laurels It's a dynamic church as you are, as Jerusalem was. 
but slowly faded and the Spirit of God had to move on elsewhere? Or are you going to be passionate for mission now and in the spring? A mission in which you expect to see the Holy Spirit move in power in this place. That's the challenge. Let's have a prayer about it, shall we? Right now. Moment of quiet to make your response to the Lord. This tale of two cities, one that slowly lost its zeal, the other that became a blazing center of spiritual life. And of course, these cities are made up of individuals like us. Are we prepared to allow the Lord to use us as the lay people of God to make sacrifices of time and comfort, money? Are we thrilled with Jesus and willing to overflow? Are we open to the Holy Spirit changing the, the bad stuff in our character, giving us gifts so that we can serve him better and driving us out into service. Perhaps we have never even invited the Holy Spirit into our lives. And of course we don't want to give anything out then because there's nothing to give. But he gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So let's ask him Perhaps, if you never have, to come into your very life and start tonight being a real follower of Jesus. And if you're that already, to fill you and to flood you and to overflow from you and from this lovely church.